Welcome to the Ed Epley Experience. 20 minutes that simplifies the complex job of managing and leading people and inspires you to take action on what you probably already know to build and sustain a smart and healthy business. Here's your host, Ed Epley, to introduce this week's guest and business leader. Welcome to the Ed Epley Experience. This is your chance to get in less than 30 minutes one proven practical idea for how you can run a more successful and sustainable business. Our guest today has a couple of important qualities I want to share with you. Number one, he's a gentleman. He has a few bad habits, but more importantly, he lets me have mine and doesn't point them out to me too frequently. So I appreciate that. He's very resilient. And we'll talk a bit about that. He's highly visionary and he's a really good friend. So I'm excited to have Tom Flesh, the CEO or chairman. I got to get that title straight here of the Gordon Flesh Company. Thanks for joining us today, Tom, on the Ed Epley Experience. Good to be here. Ed. Thanks for those kind words. I've never heard that many out of you. To tell you the truth. <laughs> That's not usually how we roll, but that's the spot. <laughs> Have you been here, Ed? I know you are. And as you can tell, Tom has a good sense of humor as well. The Gordon Flesh Company is known around central Ohio, for those of you who are, are listening from that area, as, as kind of the leading organization in copiers and technology. But they're a lot more than that. So first of all, tell the audience who Gordon Flesh, the company is and who he was. Well, you know, how he got into the business, I think it was a great story and it says a lot about him. He was a, a sales manager for a typewriter dealer in, in Madison, Wisconsin. Running a sales force, he's got three kids, one on the way, life's pretty good. The new technology came out the 3M had, it was called the Thermofax. It was a box about you know, two feet this way, foot that way, and it made copies. And he wanted to get into the business in the, the typewriter dealership, the owner, didn't think that was good technology to get into. So my dad went out and borrowed $10,000 from his father-in-law quit his job, and started the business. So when you think about it, honey, I'm home. I know you have three, <laughs> have three kids and one on the way. I don't have a job, and I owe your dad $10,000. Wow. That's literally how it started, Dad. And he sold, serviced, delivered, did everything, and slowly built the company from there. Did he ever go back to the owner of the typewriter company? I don't know if they ever spoke. It worked out. <laughs> Typewriters went by the wayside, as you know. Oh, yeah. You know, the copier business exploded, especially, you know, that was 1956. But when you really got into the explosions were, were 70 and 80 and 90, they, they, uh, they just exploded. Well, the thing I find funny about that is, first of all, you and I are old enough to remember typewriters <laughs> and, and literal inboxes. Right, exactly. But there was a time at which they even talked about a paperless society, and that's not happened, correct? Yeah, they talked about it a long time ago, and you know nowadays this, the print industry has been shrinking. There's no question. There's you know you don't have as many papers on your desk anymore. People are using iPads versus you know uh, right. you know they're using typewriters and stuff. So print industry has been declining slowly. COVID has expanded that and has kind of accelerated that a little bit because now people are getting away from the office. Not as many people are going to be in back in the offices. So we're going to see a sort of an acceleration of the decline in print. There's still plenty of print out there, and the industry is still a $50 billion business. It's not a small business. Really? Yeah. That's huge. All we're trying to do is get our piece for as long as we possibly can. What was the expansion from Madison? How did that all work? Well, we were representing a company called Savin, and they were made by Rico. Rico, actually, you probably heard the name Rico. You've never heard the name yeah. Savin. But Savin needed a new dealer down in Chicago, the western suburbs of Chicago, so they asked us to go down there. We sent a guy down there from scratch, built a great business, did a nice job for him. 
a year later, they said, we're having problems in Columbus, Ohio. Would you be interested, Gordy? So Gordy and I actually flew down there, and he actually tried to buy a business down there. That didn't work out. But it's the biggest city we've ever looked at. I mean, we, were, we weren't in Milwaukee at the time, and we were in the western suburbs of Chicago. We weren't in the, you know Chicago proper. So, you know, I flew down there one time with them and flew at night and saw this expanse of, of lights. And I was making my money back then in a rural territory selling copiers. And I said, Dad, I can sell a lot of copiers down here. And literally six days later, we were like, my wife and I were in a car driving to Columbus, Ohio, and left Mass from scratch. Myself and two other people moved down there. So was that the third location? That was the third location, yeah. We shortly after that opened up Milwaukee, and we stayed at those four for quite a long time. Did Columbus pan out like you thought it would? It did. I mean, it, I got to remember, we went in with no base, no customers, nobody knew our name. And the name itself, Gordon Flesh, is kind of a, nobody knows what that means. I mean, let's face it, it's a weird name. We actually at one time just thought about changing it, but somehow the uniqueness stayed there. I don't know. So it took us a few years before we started making any money, but we eventually did. And also the technology that came out in the early 80s really made a difference on, on the industry itself. Xerox was the dominant player. They own basically probably 80% of the market when we first got into the business. And when Savin and Candid and others started coming with plain paper products, you know, it just accelerated our growth. It really did. Right place at the right time kind of a thing. Yeah. And Columbus is a great market to be in. You know Columbus. I mean, it's a... Oh, yeah. Well, attracted us to the beginning was it's a state capital, a lot of banking. The university was there. And if you looked at Madison, it's a very similar economic situation. So, right. you know, very recession-proof which Columbus is and has been. When we looked at that, that was a great market for us to go into. Well, how many locations do you have today? We have eight locations. We're now in seven different states. We're in Iowa. Recently, about a, year, a little over a year ago, we bought a dealership in Iowa. That also put us in Minnesota, southern Minnesota, and South Dakota. So we're in Sioux Falls, South Dakota as well, besides being in Wisconsin, Illinois, Indiana, and Ohio. So is well, this is part of a strategy, obviously. When did you decide that you wanted to become big? for lack of a better term. Yeah, you know, I don't know if we ever thought, let's get big. I mean, I, our goal was to always be big. I mean, we always want to grow. Well, obviously, my dad expanding down to Chicago suburbs and also done Columbus. He set the tone for us that, yeah, let's grow this thing and, and do what we can to make it bigger. We never thought, I don't think my dad ever thought, it'd get as big as it is or the industry get as big as it is. I mean, it exploded. So I think he always instilled in us an, an attitude that, you know, if there's an opportunity, don't pass it up to grow. He took an opportunity to risk and roll the dice down in Columbus and the western suburbs of Chicago. And so when we had an opportunity to go to Indianapolis, uh, we took it. The Canon dealer down there was bought by Xerox. Canon needed a dealer down there. And we went down and opened up, you know, put three or four guys down there, started a business. Did you have competing lines of copiers, some for one area and some for another? No, not really. We've had, we had for a long time, we had Canon Sharp in all locations. Now we have Canon and Rico in basically all locations except for Iowa. It's the only place we don't have Rico. Okay. So we'd like to have two lines. It gives us a little bit of a yin yang on the products. Yeah. You know, customers aren't that hung. Some really love the manufacturer. I mean, people love Canon. It's a great product. They're the, in my opinion, and I think others, it's Cadillac of the industry, the number one market share. They're a great company to work with. But Rico and others have products that can doesn't. And so to satisfy our customers' needs, we really need two product lines. And Rico's a great manufacturer, too. Believe me, they're number two. So where do you rank relative to the normal Canon dealers? We're the largest Canon dealer in the country. So we have been for years. There's a lot of, there's other larger dealers in that have other product lines. Right. Most of them are owned by venture capital groups now. There's one that is not. It's a good friend of ours. He does about $250 million or more. 
It's a lot of copiers. Yeah. And we'll hit probably 175 or something this year in our business. So we're the biggest Canon dealer. So a couple of things I want to talk about. One is the transition from your dad to you. You know, that's not something most organizations get a lot of expertise at. It usually only happens one or two times. So how did that go? Well, I, you know, my opinion went pretty good. <laughs> That's just me. But, you know, I think the uh, the biggest thing about our dad, and I think both my brother John and my brother Bill will tell you, is that he wasn't hung up on keeping all the power to himself. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs have a hard time letting the, the power or control over the business. Oh, yeah. So when he, he established a, a VP of sales, VP of service, VP of admin, he'd step back from the day-to-day. Well, that lent itself to expansion because you could, you're not afraid to appoint a branch manager some authority and let them run the business. And I think that, you know, our dad wasn't afraid to say, okay, Tom, you know, I came in as a, a salesman selling audiovisual equipment, moved up to copiers, became a major account guy and a, and a sales manager, and then eventually a branch manager and vice president, and eventually the president of the company. So it didn't happen all at once. It was very gradual, and you had to earn your stripe. So he wasn't afraid of letting people make decisions, wasn't afraid of people managing me, telling me what to do. Did you work somewhere else before you joined the company? Yeah, I worked at Liberty Mutual Insurance out of Milwaukee, business insurance, yeah. How long? Uh, about a year. They moved me to Madison to open a branch for them. <laughs> Unbelievable. I had a lot of local ties and thought, oh, that'd be good, right? And uh, six months later, my dad, the, the position opened and I took the sales job and you know, the rest I stayed with the company, obviously. So Obviously. Yeah. So then the, the transition was facilitated by the structure your dad created. Yeah. I, that's a good description of my dad. And I think he also had some health issues that, you know, he had to step away as he got older. You know, he, he made me president in 85, I think it was. And it all worked out just fine somehow. I also had two brothers in the business, you know, and that can create issues. I had John, who was a year older than me, uh, and he was in Madison. I was in Columbus and Bill's in Chicago. And it's probably the smartest thing our dad ever did was just put us in three different states. Yeah, I can imagine. I've told these issues about that. <laughs> To be honest, the distance made a big difference in, in the business being able to grow. If you're all together, you could have conflicts with duties and, and all sorts of other things that come about. But So when he made the decision to make you president, how was that decided? Or, I mean, was there a family meeting or how did that all play out? Well, he was old school, too. He also was the boss. Okay. And back then, uh, you know, you didn't talk to a lot of people about next steps of the business. You just made a decision. Yeah. He literally one day took my brother John and I in his office and said, just like you know, John, and make Tom president at the board meeting this afternoon. Literally, that was all the notice you had. Wow. So he didn't even tell my mother. <laughs> we get home and back to the house that night. We thought we'd celebrate. So he tells her, and she's madder than hell at him because she did. <laughs> he didn't consult me. Consult the heck with your board of directors. I'm the board of directors. You didn't even talk to me. That's the deal. That the, you know, the old school back in the 50s. It's just the way they ran a business. And, you know, things obviously are totally different today. But Do you have a board of directors? We do, but they're all employees. We have a couple outside advisors that sit in our board meetings at legal and on the accountant side. But uh, we've looked at outside board members for years. But, you know, we know our business pretty well. And I don't know how much you're going to bring to the table. So how big is the board? How many members? We have uh, nine members on the board. Meet quarterly? Yeah. We actually, every month, we all meet. We actually have one board meeting a year. I got it. So you have ongoing meetings, but the formal meetings once a year. Yeah. Our officers get together every month for ops meetings. So. How are you different as a leader than your dad? Well, I do consult people before I make decisions. I'm going to confirm that with Jeannie. <laughs> <laughs> 
surprisingly, yeah, he does. Okay. I mean, that's a truly a different style. I mean, I think our style is different that way because we do talk to a lot of our other officers and my brothers and, you know, obviously my sons now before we make a decision to do anything major in the company where my dad would just make the decision and, you know, chips fall where they may. That's probably the biggest difference, but not much of a difference when it comes to letting people run the show, you know, given that person responsibility and run their business. If it's a branch, a service department, whatever it is. Are you still the CEO or do you have a CEO in one of your other members? No, I am the CEO. My son, Patrick, is now the president. Okay. And my son, Mark, is the COO. Okay. And so when you guys make a decision, is it discussed at the board meeting or in one of those monthly meetings or how does, how does that work? It depends on what it is. Ed. I mean, obviously, if there's family decisions, it's just with the family members. Okay. And sometimes, of course, the four of us, my brother Bill and my two sons and I will discuss things outside the board especially when it comes to structure, job titles, yeah. you know, those kind of things. Yeah. But when it comes to moving into other markets or taking on another product line, getting in another, another business, whatever that might be, that's really at a vice president ops level. So if you are in the audience or to go to the Gordon Flesh website, you're going to see technology is now a big part of the offering. When did that start, Tom? We got in the IT business probably about six, seven years ago, and we got into it from scratch started to build our own IT base. We farmed out our call center to a company called Continuum, hired some salespeople, also had our salespeople, copier guys try to sell it. You know, and that was a really rough road. I mean, we got it up to about $6 million, but it wasn't very profitable. I mean, it just, you know, barely making a buck. It's just a hard way to grow a business. You know, it's a way for us to diversify in the IT space, which was good. But about a little over a year ago, we bought an IT company out of Madison that has offices in Milwaukee and also up in the Appleton area and, of course, Madison. And they propelled us into a oh, another level, another level expertise. They know what they're doing. They've been doing it for a long time. They've got their own call center. So now you will put our, our customers to our own call center. We're making money in the business. They've been a great fit, not just technology wise, but people wise, which that's not always happening in acquisitions. No, it's very hard. They've been a fantastic fit. The owner stayed with us. Smart guy, great guy to have around. He gets the GFC program. So it's really worked out well. And we need to diversify the business, obviously, just copiers to continue on the growth. And the IT business should be a big part of our business going forward. My assumption about copiers is is that it's kind of like the old razor and razor blades. You want to sell the razor so you can really sell the blades. Is that the way the copier business still works? Yeah, we, we call it the aftermarket. So service yeah. and supplies that people make copies. Well, when COVID came along, the aftermarket went down like a rock. You know, back in, uh, started in March, but in April and May and June, it bottomed out. There was, I mean, we were, it's like every turn the lights off. Right. You know, at, at one time we had 250 people on a furlough. Oh, wow. Yeah. So the aftermarket has now come back to about 23% of where it was. I don't think it's going to come back to 100% because people just aren't going to go back in the offices. And the other thing is schools not opening killed us because we've got a lot of business in schools and universities. And 20% of our revenue comes from university schools, high schools, private schools, all forms of education. Wow. Yeah. Of those 250 that were furloughed, how many have you gotten back? About 200. You know, it was a slow process to the aftermarket started coming back. And most of them are technicians. Uh, some are admin. But most of the admins are back. And really, most of the service guys are back. About 50 we didn't bring back. So the technology model, is that more software? Is it hardware? What are you doing in that? On the IT side of the business? Yeah. Managed IT is just anything in the office that you've got from an IT standpoint. So you've got a desktop and your Ed's working on it and something goes wrong, you need support. So who do you call? So we'll do that for people, support their desktops, 
laptops, wherever it might be, take that off their internal IT support. We'll take off their, uh, we'll take care of all their security needs. And everybody knows they need security now on their servers, whether they're virtual servers or their on-prem services. Right. Servers will take care of those. So anything to do with IT, hardware size well, we just amazingly landed about a million dollars worth of hardware in one account. Wow. Yeah, it kind of blew us away. But it was, along with that comes with a lot of project management right. time. So we've got guys that build up that time as well. And we really try to, you know, go after a concept really fit our model. We don't go after anybody that, you know, has one PC and wants to doesn't fit. You know, we need a mid-sized company, 20 or so or 30 or more users to get the right price level and also the demand. Has the pandemic caused you to rethink who your ideal customer should be for the copier side of the business? Well, it's it shifted. If You know, a company up in our Appleton location has decided to go all virtual. I mean, all, they're, they're closing the building down. So it's an insurance company. So we will not get copier business out of them anymore. <laughs> so the companies that come in and do that are obviously, you know, just not going to be prospects anymore. Right. But, you know, you still have a lot of mid-range companies. The uh, healthcare industry is big. Education is going to be there for a long time. There's plenty of companies that are going to be back in the business. Manufacturers aren't going away. Do you run that IT side of the business as a separate business unit, separate profit center? Yes, we do. Completely. Yeah, we've got their own structure. So do you expect to bolt something else on to this? We are in the telephony business in, in Iowa. When we bought the company down there, they're in the telephony yeah. business. And we're, we, of course, put that on its own P&L. And it's not looking too bad. We've always talked about telephony coming throughout the company. So that's a, one we've sort of put on the wings. We actually, in the last year and a half, have bought five companies. So we've had to integrate all these companies to get it settled first. But we're looking at probably telephony as the next bolt-on. What advice would you give to somebody who's going to do an acquisition based upon having gotten five of these done now? Well, I do it in the middle of a pandemic. It really works. <laughs> You're short staff, and you got to start buying companies. It really, It's a great idea. Right, right. Yeah. I think, you know, acquiring companies, you've got you to find the right fit. Ours were geographically in the great place. You know, I was a neighbor of, it's contiguous with Wisconsin. Right. You know, the company, again, had a personality that worked really well with us or we had a lot of great relationships with them before the time. But you got to look at that, too. If, they, if they're not going to fit in from a, from a cultural standpoint, you can have a disaster on your hands. Just a disaster. You have to, you know, we've acquired a few that have not been, you know, a great fit from a personality standpoint. But uh, these last five have been really good fits. We've been very lucky. And they're just great folks we brought on. When you made one of those acquisitions where the culture didn't fit, how did you fix it? Did you get rid of it, the company, or did you get rid of people? People. You got to get your right people. You got to get, you know, a Gordon Flesh person in there. Thinks like we do, acts like we do, thinks, likes where the company's going. You know, if they're going to fight you all the way, it just, it doesn't work yet. You know that in the business, you oh, just yeah. can't have it. You got you to move on. Yep. Life's too short. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you're reinvesting in the business when you do that and it costs you more, but you don't have any chance. You don't have any choice. You know, it is what it is. We always offer this one tidbit from our guests that, you believe it's indispensable to somebody running a better business or a better organization. I know it's awfully hard to pick one thing, but could you try for us? Yeah, I, I think it's pretty simple, actually. I, I think you hire the right people and you give them a little leash. It's kind of back to our dad's philosophy. I, when I look around and look at our officers right now, and, you know, our sons now are assuming bigger roles, and I look at the team that surrounds them, and, you know, they're a bunch of great people, smart, young. They know the business. They're a lot smarter than I am or ever will be. And I think if you hire the right people and give them a leash to run the business, you can be in great shape. I think the problem is people 
so especially some entrepreneurs just want to hold on to that power and don't want to give it up. And I think it's the biggest mistake an entrepreneur makes. Trying to micromanage your business is no way to run a business. It just isn't. You've made me think of a question here. I got to ask on the back end of that. Do you think of yourself as an entrepreneur like your dad? No, I never have. I've never looked at myself as an entrepreneur. I think that, you know, we looked at ourselves as, as good managers, you know, and try to keep the company going in the right direction. But, you know, I, an entrepreneur to me is a guy that starts business. You know, he's got three kids and one on the way and quits his job. Borrows $10,000 from his dad, father-in-law. I mean, that's an entrepreneur. I think I, I should step back just for a second there because I know I had some of the fears of, of an entrepreneur when I went down to Columbus. Yeah. You know, I didn't have a base. We didn't have any friends. We had no customers. You know, we were pretty lonely, the two of us. We didn't have kids at the time. In the middle of all that, we had a security guard start our office in Madison on fire. Oh, gee. Yeah. And then my dad had a heart attack and had bypass surgery. And the banks were coming out saying, did he start the fire on purpose? Gee, many Christmas. Yeah. It, there was six months to a year there that I didn't know if we were going to make it or not, but we did. You sure did. I think we need uh, another 30 minutes with you to hear more stories because you got some good ones, Tom. Well, there's, there's more. I bet there are. I bet there are. He's Tom Flesh. He's the CEO of the Gordon Flesh Company. He's a friend. He's a great businessman. And he's a very good leader. Tom, thanks for being with us today on the Ed Epley Experience. Great to be here. Always. Thanks, Tom. Thank you for listening to the Ed Epley Experience. For more information on building a more sustainable, smarter, and healthier business, visit www.theepleygroup.com for resources, tips, and Ed's latest blogs. That's the Epley, E-P-P-L-E-Y, group.com. Plus, take a free assessment at theepleygroup.com slash assessment to find out how you measure up as a highly skilled and accomplished manager and where to focus on improving your skills. 